Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now, Mike Wilson, Morgan Stanley Chief U.S. Equity Strategist, joining us on the phone. Fantastic to have Mike with us. Mike, let me just begin with a line of yours that comes from your team and your research. COVID-19 may simply be the accelerant for a cycle that was already on its way to ending. Your thoughts, Mike? Yeah, I I think that's, you know, our main message over the past month, actually, is that we actually think that this correction we're going through now is just a continuation of the correction that really began almost two years ago, okay? And you guys are familiar with our work on the rolling bear market, the consolidation call, and quite frankly, the fourth quarter of last year was a false breakout that was orchestrated by extraordinary liquidity. Uh, and sure, the fundamentals were trying to bottom, but as you all know, and you know, we wrote about it, a lot of other people wrote about it, you know, the markets got way ahead of the fundamental recovery that was, you know, apparent. And so it was a liquidity-driven rally in the fourth quarter, and that's fine. And, you know, that trapped a lot of people, including us, to some degree. And, you know, now we're back to reality, which is that the cycle was already moving in this direction. And it all, you know, this is the way, this is the way recessions happen, right? You, you have a host of headwinds, and I'll just go through a few of them. We had the margin pressure, you know, from the fiscal stimulus, and that's been, a, the, that's been the crux of our call for the last two years, is that we're actually still in an earnings recession in the U.S. for the average company. The second one was the tariffs, which are still in place, by the way. They haven't really gone away. They've just been, you know, not getting worse. Uh, of course, we had a Federal Reserve that, you know, went the distance on tightening two years ago. They did a tremendous amount of tightening via both the balance sheet and rates, and that works with about a two-year lag. And so we're kind of right back on schedule. And, and look, we, nobody ever knows what the event is going to be that kind of pushes you over. But to look at the virus or, quite frankly, the uh, price war in, in oil markets, which is, I think, even a bigger deal potentially for credit markets, you, know, you take the two of those together and, you know, in conjunction with what's already a headwind for, uh, you know, the global economy and the U.S. economy, and you have the recipe for just finishing the cycle. And I think markets have appropriately... Uh, started to discount that. And we've done a lot of damage in the last month. I mean, stocks were down 20% overnight, you know, from peak yeah. to trough. So, so we're there, and we're in the process of doing that. And so today we're having a giant rally on hopes for fiscal st- This is how bottoms are made. It won't all happen on one day. It's going to take, you know, it's going to take time, you know. And by the way, you know, policymakers, this is exactly what they typically do. They they throw out a suggestion to the market and say, hey, how about, you know, a 50 basis point emergency cut? Well, the market doesn't like it. Oh, how about this? How about that? And then eventually, you know, we find a level that, you know, supports where we are. So, Mike, Lisa's going to want to ask you about credit in just a moment. But I want to understand from your perspective, is there not a fiscal response that could be unveiled today that would be sufficient in your eyes to extend this cycle? I don't think we can extend. I think we have to get away from this idea about extending the cycle. And let's talk about how do we now deal with the downturn and protect the next cycle, okay? That's, that's, that's my mindset. And you know, we, don't know how, we don't know if we're going to have a recession right now, but good grief. I mean, every indicator we look at suggests that's what the market expects at this point. I mean, that's what the bond market's been telling us for, quite frankly, for two years. And then this 
extraordinary move we've seen in the last month, which exceeded anything in our dreams in terms of how low we would go. I mean, that I think it's you know the, I think the markets have basically spoken, and and so now <clears throat> policy choices should be about how do we make sure we don't get stuck, okay, in a in a trap where you know we end up with rates at these levels in perpetuity, and you know, and we're in a situation where the U.S. looks like Japan and Europe. That's not our view, by the way. We don't think that we are going to end up in that situation. But you know, that's what policymakers should be thinking about. How do we, how do we, kind of get the next cycle going? What's the investor playbook, Mike? Given the fact that there is a lot of uncertainty about what this bottom will look like, and given the fact that we are going to get some policy response. Well, I think the mar- well, first of all, the play- our playbook has been to be much more defensively oriented. In our uh, in our sector preferences, right? So we've been playing for this now for, for almost two years. We've we've been overweight utilities and staples because those are always the sectors that do well at the end of a cycle. I mean, clearly things like software and technology that are defensive, they've done really well too because they're they're geared to lower interest rates and they're somewhat defensive business models. So it doesn't have to be pure defense. But my point is, is that the playbook has been to be more defensively oriented in your positioning, whether it be long duration or long defensively oriented sectors away from cyclical areas. And I would argue we're in the eighth inning of that. I mean, this has been going on now for a long time. So the playbook now is to think about when do I want to play for the next cycle uh, and get more cyclically geared. Uh, And that would be things like, you know, consumer discretionary and banks and materials and early cycle sectors. I think it's premature to do that, but we're getting closer. Hey, Mike, great to catch up with you this morning. Busy morning, I know, for the whole team over at Morgan Stanley. We appreciate your time. Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson there, Chief U.S. Equity Strategist. turn to in a given crisis like this when you look at the different shocks that we've seen. And one would be a gentleman who in 1991 reaffirmed uh, a style of writing linking history, and in this case, into hydrocarbons. And that, of course, is Daniel Jurgen's prize. That in itself was extraordinary. Far more important was only seven years later, he followed up with the commanding heights, which is a definitive look at how we have vaulted from World War II forward in our capitalism. We're thrilled that Daniel Jurgen could join us today with IHS as well. Uh, Dr. Jurgen, thank you so much for finding time um, with us. Is this a set of crises that we get over, like the end of a virus or Russia and Saudi Arabia meeting together to get to a more stable oil price? Or do you sense some permanence in our, in our lives due to these set of crises? I think that it's a, uh, that at some point you could imagine the Russians and the Saudis getting together again. But right now, this is a a grudge match that's going on between the two countries. The Saudis have price, cut their prices in oil, particularly aimed at uh, Russia's market in northwest uh, Europe. So it's really two shocks at the same time. One is an unprecedented demand shock resulting from the virus, and then it's this uh, declaration of, mm-hmm. uh, of uh, market, battle for market share, and we've had those before, but we've never had this together. Is the OPEC Imperium over, as you wrote of in the prize 29 years ago? Is the cartel broken? 
Well, I think, I mean, at the end of the day, it's what a few countries want to do and whether, how they want to use it. And I think the fact that they recognize that they needed to create this OPEC plus, make a deal with Russia, tells you how the world has changed. Right now, it's really, it, instead of the OPEC Imperium, it's the big three. It's what happens to Saudi Arabia, Russia, and what happens to the world's largest oil producer, which is the United States. Dan, I'm sure you've lost count the amount of times over the last few decades that we've declared the death of OPEC, but we seem to be doing it again. Shale, though, is a game changer. I'm trying to understand where the greatest tension is right now. Is it between Saudi Arabia and Russia or between those two countries and U.S. shale? I think it one for Saudi Arabia, it's between Saudi Arabia and Russia right now. I think the Russians have their sights on, uh, on U.S. shale because of the tremendous growth, losing market share to it. And I think that uh, they see the U.S. now using its muscle energy and want to counteract that. So the Russians have always, uh, over the last several years, been more alarmed by the growth of shale. It seemed to me that the Saudis had kind of accommodated themselves to this is the new reality. I'm just wondering, Dan, going forward, does this ultimately destroy demand for oil or actually increase demand for oil? And I ask because people were talking about peak oil demand in the next decade as renewables start to gain online. I mean, does this actually give oil a longer shelf life because it's cheaper? Well, I think it, it normally you would say that this would mean that uh, demand, you know, you get prices like this, demand should really go up. That's what we've seen before. I think the difference here is the virus. I mean, what started this whole thing was this unprecedented demand shock. In the first quarter of this year, we think oil demand is almost 4 million barrels a day lower than it was in the same quarter last year. And that that is going to continue. And, you know, we see the markets responding very positively, as you've been talking this morning, to the talks of stimulus coming out of Washington. But keep in mind, and this is what really weighs on my mind, you have low gasoline prices. They don't really matter if schools are closed, if you've canceled your next two trips, and you're working from home. You're not going to see that up uptick in demand. And so I think when the Russians in particular were looking at the market, they were seeing this virus spreading across North America and across Europe, and demand continuing to be weak, uh, going in, at least going into the beginning of the summer. So that's what's different, I think, about this time than normally. Normally, a prices like this would be great for demand, and it would be a stimulus to the economy, but not with the other things that are going on right now. But Dan, just sort of pushing it forward, longer term, is there any longer lasting implication for oil as sort of the benchmark use of, for energy going forward from this coronavirus plus uh, war between Saudi Arabia and Russia? Well, I think that uh, going to your your question, I mean, we still see demand continuing to grow into the 2030s in oil, which I know is not what other people see, but looking at population growth and economic growth. I think that, um, you know, this this pandemic, when let's call it what it is, a pandemic will end and it probably ends around, you know, at least you hear public health authorities saying maybe uh, somewhere in the second or third quarter. At that point, you'll see uh, the rebound. But when you have a whole country like Italy shut down, uh, that is that contributes to the demand shock. People are not doing a lot of driving in Italy right now.
We welcome all of you worldwide, including in Italy, with us. Daniel Jurgen of IHS, of course, the author of The Prize, The Quest, and also The Commanding Heights. You have a brilliant section in The Commanding Heights, Dan Jurgen, where Churchill marches off to Potsdam and marches back to massive electoral defeat. I mean, the tumult of populism right now. We have a president today who's going to commit fiscal stimulus with his fellow Republicans on the Hill, I guess. How have we come to a point where creating fiscal support to any given nation, any given economy is so difficult. That wasn't the case across your book, The Commanding Heights. And yet now we have this embedded austerity. Where did it come from? Well, I think I think it looks like embedded austerity until you look at the budget deficits across the uh, around the world and uh, rate that against GDP. But I think that what you're Pointing to, I mean, certainly there's, you know, we've seen a, a kind of loss of, of confidence in markets. And I think if we pick up on the commanding heights, what we're really seeing is a test of, uh, of, uh, of globalization as it's developed, as I wrote about it in Commanding Heights. And in the, in the people talked about decoupling from China. We have real discovered from this how coupled we are with China, how interconnected this economy is. And going to your point, Tom, it's the question of international coordination. In 2008, we had a lot of very clear international coordination going on. Uh, it's harder this time because of the kind of populism and nationalism you're talking about, and yet yeah. you need it. This is exactly what Philip Hildebrand of BlackRock said today, John Farrell. The lack of coordination here is critical. It's been a massive problem, and I think OPEC speaks to the much broader issue of a lack of coordination in the places we expect it at times like this. Dan, you've touched on globalization. I think it's critical. This issue of national security has been thrown around so much over the last few years, but when you start to find out just how much you depend on one country to supply things like pharmaceutical ingredients, we've got a problem, haven't we, Dan? Well, absolutely. I mean, we're you know, although we're scrambling to make... Uh, Mask uh, here, by the way, which are a petrochemical product, all those N95 masks, uh, we find out that the bulk of them and a lot of medical supplies uh, come from China. And I think people didn't realize just how interconnected these supply chains are and the stress on them and what's happening. Tankers, where are tens and tens of thousands of containers are in the wrong place or they're arriving uh, there's nothing to put back in them. So that's where I think this is really a test of globalization on top of everything else. Dan Jurgen, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Dr. Jurgen, of thank course, you. with the prize. And even though it's 29 years uh, old, uh, John. It takes 29 years to read. Well, no, no. You, know, you used to walk around <laughs> on campus because it was cool. I, I joke with Dan about this all the time. It. For our listeners that haven't yeah. read this book, I mean, if you order it's this from Amazon, yeah. it will come in a very, very large box. It is a rite of passage, <laughs> as is the commanding heights as well. Dan Jurgen, of course, the more modern, the quest as well. Philip Hildebrand of BlackRock and Stephen Major of HSBC, their global head of fixed income research. And Philip, what I want to do is show a chart, which, you know, is something I've used over the years with Bill Gross, and frankly, I should use it with uh, Steve Major. This is one of the great calls of all time. Think Eisenhower in the 50s, up to the moment of Paul Volcker, and then the great, great disinflation. And what is so true along the way here, and Credit Suisse to me always had, Steve Major, the best, best idea, rates are going to go up. Rates are going to go up. Rates are going to go up. You get the, you get the theme here. Rates are going to go up. 
rates are going to go up, and now we're down here at an unimaginable low interest rate, something that Stephen Major has absolutely nailed like no other strategist at no other house. We're thrilled that Steve Major could join us with Dr. Hildebrand this morning. Steve Major, the cry is out there. Rates are going to go up. Why aren't they? Well, the first reason is we can't afford them to go up. And part of the explanation for low yields over the years has been the excessive debt. So it's a question of servicing costs. The, the economy, both the public and private sector combined, cannot afford uh, to have higher rates. Uh, the, the latest uh, uh, shock uh, in the form of the virus has maybe accelerated an inevitable shift towards a weakening economy and even a, a recession. So for now, uh, rates are stuck uh, close to the zero bound in the US and negative elsewhere. Um, at the moment, all we're waiting to see is the central banks responding or even reacting to what's already happened. Uh, the, the interest rates are an outcome from what's come before. It's not like they're actually leading anything. Within that will be the new disinflation. Many people are writing about this demand shock, this supply shock, and the idea of an aggregate disinflation. Will we see rates drive ever lower? Will we see negative interest rates, for example, in the United Kingdom? Well, negative rates have been evident for the last decade in real terms. So every big country has had deep negative real rates. The US was the outlier in 2018 with the rate hikes, which now with hindsight look like a massive policy mistake. So negative real rates for the last decade has been normal. The UK has had deep uh, nominal negative real rates. In, in Switzerland and Denmark, you have minus 75. I mean, the direction of travel is quite clear. Um, the ECB isn't going to be hiking rates this week, is it? Uh, obviously, the move is down. Uh, Stephen, uh, we'll get back to that in a second, you know, looking at the, the real yields, you know, gone negative also on the 10-year U.S., but yeah. actually, is the yeah. yield going to go negative? Yeah. It's not the real, but just is it going to go negative this year? Well, in, in the U.S., um, it looks like there's a strong resistance to negative policy rates and negative yields. In the U.K. yesterday, we know that the market traded negative, but we're a long way from negative policy rates. The resistance to negative rates is quite strong, and, and there's a big banking lobby out there, and there's the existence of cash that, for now, uh, is, is a big barrier to going negative. But never say never, maybe for the next cycle. Do you agree with that, Philip Hildebrand? Well, never say never. Well, certainly would never say never, yeah. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a good dictum. I mean, look, from a macro perspective, something has to change for rates to change. Uh, as Stephen just said, this, rates are not low because central banks put them there, but because of, of macro phenomena. So what could change? Demographics aren't going to change. Productivity could, in principle, change. You know, we don't fully understand why productivity has been so low. So we could see at some point a jump in productivity, or we could see a major shift in policy. But something has to change for the rate outlook to change. And as I said earlier, if you look at uh, the inflation forecast for a very long time to come, measured in years, the market right now does not expect that. I mean, this is such an interesting discussion, and what Steve Major said there, uh, and this is what we always hear from a brave guy like Steve Major, uh, Dr. Hildebrand, is the banking lobby. Who is the blank? I mean, you're a connected guy. Who is the banking lobby out there 
dictating what policy should be to institutional policyholders as you were at the Swiss National Bank. Did these guys call you up? I mean, is there a special phone? There's not a special phone, but uh, I certainly went through my uh, bruising exchanges uh, with some CEOs. But at the end of the day, you know, I think, um, look, nobody likes when the environment makes your job difficult. Um, <laughs> so I have some sympathy for bankers, but they also need yeah. to recognize that, uh, again, as Steve said, you know, rightly, this is not the low interest rate environment. Is it difficult for banks? Yes. Was it caused by policymakers? No. It is a result, a consequence of uh, demographics, of savings. Uh, these are global phenomena, which is why we have low interest rates uh, throughout the world. So bankers need to uh, also brush up on their macro right. a little bit and, and understand why we are where we are. Steve Major, I mean, this is such a delicate conversation. As you say, there's a banking uh, a, a lobby out there. I mean, they've observed negative interest rates in Europe and basically the Anglo-Saxon world is saying no, Anglo-American world is saying no, we don't want to do that. Are our mechanisms any better yeah. than negative interest rates? Well, you might notice that I work for a bank. And the, the concern I have is that uh, the central banks do not set the policy rates so banks can make money and pay bonuses. They set uh, policy rates for the real economy. So, so, so that's why there's that uh, tension there. Um, uh, obviously, negative rates and very flat curves are not very good for banks. Everyone knows that. Um, so, so the alternatives are interesting, and that's why uh, the market has moved on to start debating about yield curve control, as we've seen in Japan. We've had caps in place in the U.S. throughout history. Um, people will remember uh, financial repression from war bonds and consoles in the U.K. So people are thinking along these lines. Um, I, I think QE is not an obvious uh, next step either, because uh, the more central banks do QE, the more pressure they put on the banking system because of the reserves that are created. And, that, and that's quite unproductive for banks. So... so um, uh, I, I think the next step needs to be a little bit more uh, creative, and that's why over the years people have started to talk about all these alternative policies and, and right. uh, you know, helicopter money has been suggested, etc. I was going to ask you about that, Stephen. What would it take for, for the Fed to use helicopter money? Or any other central bank, actually? Well, we know back in... Yeah, well, back in 2016, we wrote papers about this, and it was at the, it was at the time what we called the elephant in the room. That, that, and in fact, it was wrong. We, we got completely wrong-sided. And there is a danger sometimes people like me could get too gloomy. I, I, I am actually worried that in 2020, we might be on the verge of some kind of paradigm shift. Uh, and so it, 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 you're know, more of a secular kind of shift. And, and, and that's a big worry because you don't know it's happened until afterwards. So helicopter money in its various guises ha has shown some, it has been shown around the world. In, in Hong Kong, something similar was tried recently. Yeah. Uh, although it was funded out of reserves, it was funded, so it wasn't the purest form. Uh, but, but, you know, there, there are many proposals that have been around for a few years, and I think that we'll see them tried. Yeah.
You guys, I'm loving this conversation, folks. Steve Major with us with HSBC and Philip Hildenbrand of BlackRock as well. Dr. Hildenbrand, let me go to you on the paradigm shift, which is called Japanification. How close are we to um, exporting Japanification and importing it into Europe and, for that matter, into America? Is it a paradigm shift where we become like Japan? Well, we're about to see the ECB um, is redoing their projections, their economic projections, uh, that, that, you know, I'm sure some of them, uh, as they work through them in the next governing council, uh, will imply or suggest that we are going to go back to a recessionary environment. So the reality is uh, the escape out of this um, low interest rate environment, the escape out of zero rates, you know, has not happened. Uh, there was some hope early in the year that we could be set up for it, but certainly with this sharp and, and potentially deep impact of the coronavirus, I think that story is over. We all need to reassess, and so do central banks. Um, I don't think you can throw up your hands and say that's just the way it's going to be. We need to learn from history. We need to think about creative ways to respond. And uh, most importantly, we need this aggressive and coordinated response. I think. You know, Steve is right to point out to some of the flaws, uh, deep flaws around the sort of purest form of helicopter money. Certainly, uh, that is not where we want to go. But I do think what we need to have is a way to basically for fiscal policy to work directly to consumers and households. Uh, that is the key right now in this in this sort of natural disaster paradigm, because if you don't have that, uh, just to hope that it somehow works through the financial system isn't going to work. SMEs, if they can't pay their rent because they have no customers, there's no place to go for them in the capital markets. Uh, we have to be realistic. The only way a good business can survive if the customers are certainly gone, suddenly gone because they can't come to the store is if they get direct financial support. Philip, when you talk about decisive policy action now, is it in the next two weeks or is it a month? I mean, the timeline seems very crucial here. Yeah, uh, I think it has to step up or, you know, it has to begin immediately. Look, I'm not a medical expert, but most of the medical expertise that I read and study suggests that this is going to be with us for some time, uh, measured in months, not weeks. Uh, so I think it's, it's a matter of sustained support for some time. And if we do that, this will prove to be temporary. I think that's the key. Uh, you know, one of the things I learned during the crisis, and Tim Geithner was a great advocate of this, don't ever assume when you have a problem that everything else stays the same. This is where government action comes in and can make a difference. So if we want this to be temporary, which by nature it should be, provided we have the right response on the medical side, then we need aggressive and bold direct support uh, through the fiscal channel. And monetary policy can, can be a piece of a coordinated approach, but it's a limited piece by definition because A, it's exhausted or nearly exhausted, and B, it's really not per se the right, the right way to, to deal with a natural disaster, uh, which is what this effectively is. Philip, thanks so much. Philip Hildebrand of BlackRock, Stephen Major of HSBC. You know what Meredith Sumter does? It's great. She brings in the Chinese headlines. I know, and you ask her every Chinese. single time to do that. And she killed it. She I mean, joins it's, us now. It's a really different view. From Washington, Eurasia Group <laughs> Head of Research Strategy, Meredith, save us all. Great to have you with us on the phone. Let's just start with a pretty simple question. President Xi turning up in Wuhan. Yeah. Is that just a PR event? 
it's not just a PR event for the external audience. It's also a leadership event for the domestic audience as well. This is she trying to own the crisis and putting an underscore uh, below his view that this is the ultimate test of not only his leadership ability, but of the Communist Party's governance ability. He's responding to what was criticism uh, with his handling of the virus early on and not showing up when his premier, Li Keqiang, did. Uh, so this is in part to uh, boost uh, his domestic standing and try to boost fragile confidence at home that China might be getting ahead of where the virus is going there. Meredith, can we just take a step back uh, away from just the progression of the virus? Will it come back? Won't it come back? And get a sense of how damaging the one-two punch to China is right now. The idea that the supply chains got uh, disrupted completely by the shutdown of the Hubei district, but then also now we have a slowdown in global growth as Italy shuts down and a growing number of nations quarantine entire sections of their countries. How difficult will it be for China to recover from this? It's going to be incredibly difficult. But I think what, what what's key here is not so much the Communist Party leadership. They're not as concerned about how they're necessarily going to recover. They're still much more focused on containing new outbreaks. And so the political priorities there is not let's restart the economy quickly. It's more so let's make sure that we are on top of containment. And if that means a much slower recovery period, we'll deal with that. Is that really the case? Because actually some people are saying one concern is they're going to ramp up factories uh, too quickly and that it will reignite another spread. Is that is that a false narrative? No, no. I think that's actually that's quite an accurate narrative. And I think that the, the, the Communist Party leadership, as well as local leaders, are quite nervous about the opening mm. of factories and about the spread of workers across countries. They want to get ahead of new outbreaks that could th that, right. that could throw off their ability to to well manage the the crisis. Uh, Meredith Sumter, if, if the president stunned the world and took away the tariffs, looking for a bilateral approach there from the Chinese as well, what would be the effect on the economies? Not as great as an effect as both leaders would like. And and frankly, look, this is. We have the world's two largest economies that are increasingly at, at the center of this global disruption, but it's much bigger than just the U.S. and China. And, and look, we, we've had global crises before, but this time it's different. This is not what we saw in 1999 with the Committee to Save the World from the Asian financial crisis, nor is it 2008, where we saw significant coordinated action across core economies to save off the absolute worst of that global financial crisis. What is marking the global response is more so a lack of meaningful coordination amongst global leadership at the very top to get ahead of where we are, to get ahead of the crisis from both a health and a market standpoint. And this is really resulting in a lower confidence by the public and by investors in the global leader's ability uh, to stave off further spread of the virus and its related economic and growth costs. Well, Meredith, there's reasons not to have that confidence. I mean, I look at the situation in China right now. There's some people who think the WHO are afraid of criticizing China publicly because they might lose access to China. There are some people who think economists are basically highballing their estimates for the economy because they're afraid of losing access to China. Just how much of a problem is that? 
transparency has been a, a core of of the complications of understanding the severity of the crisis in China, and it's caused that country to be backfooted in its initial handling of the spread of the virus. I think also, though, what's really at play here is is not just what's happening in China, but you, you, you really hit the nail on the head, Jonathan. You have a WHO in a fragmented <clears throat> global environment that mm. is playing much more of a guiding role. It is not as authoritative as one would think for an, an international body that is trying to direct uh. country governments to make the right choices, to do the right things that would that would be able to uh, enable this public health crisis to abate faster than it is. Right. And the result is we have a scattershot approach of how country governments are trying to deal with the crisis. And that's resulting yeah. in a lot of confusion, it's resulting in a lot of inefficiencies, and it's essentially elongating uh, the the spread of the virus and the ec- related right. economic crisis that we're dealing with. Meredith, thank you so much. Meredith Sumter with Thanks, the Eurasia Group. Just terrific briefing there in China, and of course it redounds back to Washington. Sabadra Ajapa, Société Générale's head of U.S. rate strategy. She joins us now. Sabadra, great to catch up with you. Treasury yields. Wow through some aggressive targets that you started at the start of the year. Where are you now? Um, I think Lisa made a very good point, which is it's really hard to sort of look at this market from a fundamental perspective. Yes, we had a massive uh, rally yesterday. We're giving up some of those gains today. But it's really hard to look at yields and say and sort of affirmatively say, where things should trade. What the bond market is now pricing in is for zero interest rate policy and looking past that, the potential for quantitative easing or forward guidance or more extraordinary measures coming from the Federal Reserve. So any volatility in risky assets is translating to gains in the bond market. So, Barta, the the great call you've had combined with the SOCGEN caution calls for an important reassessment right now. Have you brought in your house call on disinflation and sluggish real GDP growth? Have you brought that in ever more so? Um, again, if we, the uh, move in uh, break-even seems like it's, again, a little bit uh, too overdone, but it's really hard to know if we start seeing um, oil prices decline to new lows or below 30, you're, start, you're talking about more of a financial stability risk. Uh, break-evens below 100 is very troubling. Um, I'm sure the Fed is paying very close attention to that. But broadly speaking, what the bond markets are reaffirming is our call for a recession this year. And now this is not just a, a U.S. recession. It's looking more like a global recession and a global decline in, in, in bond yields. So uh, the, the policy, the policy right. prescription has to come from uh, sort of coordinated action globally. I'm looking at the moving average study of the break-evens, and Lisa, it's real simple. Yeah, break-evens have spiked down to indicate significant disinflation guesstimate. These are 10-year break-evens, but on a moving average study, the vector's been disinflation since 2013. Yeah, and the implication here is that, yes, the Federal Reserve's going to drop to zero, and it's not going to matter, that they're going to try to go as as low as they can go, at least uh, within modern history, and it's not going to work. I'm just wondering what that means for Treasury 
treasuries as an asset class going forward. J.P. Morgan's Bob Michael came on with us yesterday, uh, yesterday afternoon and said that, frankly, treasuries will not act as a haven asset class going forward just because we've reached a, a certain lower bound for the time being. Do you agree? Um, I agree with that view, and I think that that's really the risk, right, is that you're starting to see a gradual Japanification of the U.S. curve. So, you know, once you start getting closer and closer to the to the zero lower bound, it's going to be very, very hard for treasuries to actually act as that safe haven asset. It's, uh, you know, and that's ultimately the, the risk. And, and as you pointed out earlier, I think the uh, the fact that central banks um, easing even back to the zero lower bound is not going to do a lot for inflation expectations is also troubling. I mean, the trajectory for inflation uh, globally, not just in the U.S. In the U.S. actually, you know, CPI has held up pretty well even in the last couple of years, but it's the global inflation picture that's been dragging U.S. inflation expectations lower. And <sighs> it's, it's not clear that policy can do a whole lot to reverse that. Sabadra, fantastic to catch up with you. Sabadra Rajapa, Soste General's head of US rate strategy, calling for much lower yield at the start of the year. And wow, did she turn out to be right. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.